All right, again, thank you so much for attending our Bible study for tonight. So we'll go ahead and proceed to the first set of questions, and they are as follows. Hello, Paul, Brother John. My question is about Cain, Genesis 4, 10 to 17. My questions are, was there an existing inhabitants in the land of Nod, or are they the descendants of Adam too? And so let's go ahead and look into that question based upon Genesis chapter 4, 10 to 17. Question is, there's a mention of the land of Nod, the people who lived there, are they descendants of Adam too? Genesis 4, 16 and 17, and Cain went out from the presence of Yahuwah and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. And Cain knew his wife and she conceived and bore Enoch and he built a city and called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. And so that is what is written in Genesis 4, 16 to 17. What we find here is Yahuwah's judgment upon Cain that he is to be a vagabond. And so he was basically removed from among his brethren and he went east of Eden to a place called the land of Nod. In the land of Nod, Cain knew his wife. In other words, they had sexual intercourse, a result of which was the birth of Enoch, who eventually builds a city. And so the question is, were there people residing in the land of Nod? And if so, were they descendants of uh, Adam as well? And so let's go ahead and look at the place called land of Nod. In Hebrew, the word Nod is actually the Hebrew word node, which means wandering. And so we can look at this place called Land of Nod as a play on words. It's a land of wandering. Now, why would this place be called the land of wandering? Let's read the book of Genesis 4.12. When you till the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. A fugitive and a vagabond, you shall be on the earth. What we read to you is Yahuwah's judgment upon who? Cain, because Cain slew his brother Abel, Yahuwah confronted him and Yahuwah said, you are going to be punished. And what was the punishment? He is no longer able to till the ground. He's going to be a fugitive and a vagabond. Now, what does that mean to be a vagabond? Again, let's turn to the Hebrew word of vagabond. It turns out to be nude. Does that sound familiar? It sounds like non. And when we look at the Hebrew word, it is to shake, waver, wander. And so it turns out the land of Nod was actually named after Cain because he is or he was the original wanderer. And so when Cain moved to the land of Nod, what would happen to him there? Bible says, and Cain went out from the presence of Yahuwah and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. Cain knew his wife and she conceived and bore Enoch and he built a city. And so eventually this place called the land of Nod would become a city because Enoch would build a city. This is the first mentioning of a city in the Holy Bible. And we can attribute that to Cain and his progeny. And so were there people in the land of Nod? Remember, 
when this was written, this was written after the fact, right? Who wrote the book of Genesis? Yahuwah God used who as the instrument? Moses. During that time, there was already inhabitants. And so as he was writing, he mentions land of Nod. Before Cain moved there, there was no inhabitants. It only became a, a, a dwelling place when Cain went there. This is why it was named after him, the land of the wanderer, the land of none. These inhabitants would come from who? Cain and his line, including his son Enoch, who built a city. Okay. All right. Let's go to question number two. Uh, was there any written supporting verses regarding the mark of Cain? That's interesting. Perhaps Many of you have heard about the mark of Cain. What was it? Let's go ahead and turn to the book of Genesis 4, 14 and 16. You have banished me from the land and from your presence. You have made me a homeless wanderer. And anyone who finds me will kill me. Yahuwah replied, no, for I will give a sevenfold punishment to anyone who kills you. Then Yahuwah put a mark on Cain to warn anyone who might try to kill him. So Cain left Yahuwah's presence and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. So what was the mark of Cain? So after Yahuwah cast his judgment upon Cain, Cain was expressing his disappointment and also his concern and worry that people are going to kill him. And so what did Yahuwah God do on his behalf? He said, I'm going to put a mark on you. What's the purpose of this mark? Is it to make Cain immortal? Is that what it means? Cain will not die anymore. That's not what it says. It's simply saying there's going to be a mark on Cain. And the purpose of this mark is to warn anyone who might try to kill him. Now, for this mark to be a warning to anyone who wants to kill him, it has to be visible, right? Yeah, or it has to be understood. And so what that mark is, we cannot tell because this is the only mentioning of the mark of Cain throughout the Holy Bible. But when we look at the Hebrew word of mark, the mark of Cain, we find the word ought and the word ought is only used several times. It means uh, basically a sign used 60 times. And it has the following uh, usages in the Bible, a distinguishing mark. And so perhaps there was a mark on the skin of Cain that shows that he is not to be touched, not to be harmed because there's a warning, right? Could be a banner, but that is unlikely because every, anyone can lose a banner right? It could be remembrance, probably not. Miraculous sign, that could also be something that could have been the mark of Cain. Perhaps if anyone were to attempt to kill um, Cain, there would be a sign maybe in the heavens, but highly unlikely. And so it seems that if we're going to look at the context of the mark of Cain, something visible, something that can be understood by individuals who want to harm him, not to harm him because of the warning of Yahuwah, then it looks like it's probably letter A. But of course, we cannot be certain because the Bible does not tell us 
explicitly. What we know is there is a mark, and that mark is used to preserve the life of Cain. Now, when it comes to marks, right, in the Old Testament, we have the mark of Cain. In the New Testament, there are also the uses of marks in the Holy Scriptures. Do you know of any uh, familiar marks in the New Testament? The mark of yeah, Revelation 13, 16 to 18, he required everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to be given a mark on the right hand or on the forehead. And no one could buy or sell anything without that mark, which was either the name of the beast or the number representing his name. Wisdom is needed here. Let the one with understanding solve the meaning of the number of the beast. For it is the number of a man, his number is six, six. Six. So what, how is the, the word mark used in the New Testament? Not in the Old Testament, but in, in the New Testament. One way it's used is to show those who belong to the beast. Those who belong to the beast, a mark is given to them. So the word mark is used to show ownership. So the beast basically enslaves owns those who are pledged their allegiance to him. And this mark of ownership has been given to them. What is this mark? It says right there in the Holy Bible. What is the mark? What does the Bible tell us about the mark? The Bible says the mark, which was either, number one, the name of the beast or the number representing his name. And so... There is the name of the beast by which those who have the mark are identified with. And the number of the beast is 666. Now let's look at the Greek word for, num uh, for name because that is the mark that is to be given, right? To those who belong to the beast. This is what it says. The, the, the mark or is the name is onoma which means name, universe, uh, universally of proper names. The name is used for everything which the name covers, everything the, everything the thought or feeling of which is aroused in the mind by mentioning, hearing, remembering the name for one's rank, authority, interest, pleasure, command, excellences, deeds. And if you look at the bottom from a presumed derivative, a name literally or figuratively authority, character. And so the Bible is telling us that this mark that is given to those who belong to the beast, this mark of ownership is identified with a subjugation to the authority of the beast. This is why when we look at the word mark in the New Testament, it represents ownership. Those the people uh, are loyal to. If they're loyal to the beast, they have the mark of his name. On the other hand, there's another mark that shows ownership from Yahuwah God. What is that mark? Ephesians 1 verse 13. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised holy Spirit. What is the mark which represents ownership from Yahuwah God? It is the mark 
of the seal, which is the promised Holy Spirit. So the New Testament, there are two marks. The mark that comes from the Antichrist or the beast and the mark that comes from Yahuwah, our God. We don't know what the mark of Cain was, but what is more important is the mark. That means you belong to who? Yahuwah God. How can we get that mark? By receiving the word of truth, believing it, and receiving the Holy Spirit. That is the more important mark that we ought to be concerned about. Okay, let's go to the next question concerning the son of Cain, Enoch. He's not the same Enoch that God took because there's a Lamech and a Methuselah who came from the lineage of Seth too, just confused. So let's go to Genesis 4, 16 to 17. Who is the Enoch that is related to Cain? Then Cain went out from the presence of Yahuwah, right? And dwelt in the land of Nod, the east of Eden. Cain knew his wife and she conceived and bore Enoch. So Enoch is a person in the Holy Bible who built the first city, right? And who is the son of Cain. But there's also another Enoch in the Bible. When we jump to Genesis 5, it mentions the descendants of Adam through the line of Seth. Genesis 4, uh, the line of Cain. Genesis 5, line of Seth. Both descendants of Adam and Eve. When we go to the line of Seth, we find the following. Genesis 5, 18, 24. Jared lived 162 years and begot Enoch. After he begot Enoch, Jared lived 800 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Jared were 962 years and he died. Enoch lived 65 years and begot Methuselah. After he begot Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years and Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him. And so here's another Enoch, different from the son of Cain. This is the son of Jared. And this Enoch would give birth to Methuselah. Methuselah would give birth to Lamech. Lamech would give birth to who? Noah. So there are two Enochs in the book of Genesis. One from the line of Cain, the other from the line of Seth. We have to be careful with scriptures because Oftentimes, this will not be the first instance, oftentimes there are people with the same first names. To distinguish them, we look at their genealogy, who were their descendants, right? And so the, the two Enochs mentioned in the Bible are different people. One built the first city, the other one walked with Yahuwah God and was translated or raptured by Yahuwah, our God, Okay. So we have to be careful about names in the Holy Bible because they could be mentioning the same name, but they're actually two different people. Okay, let's go to the next question. Hello, Pope brother. Is it okay, appropriate, right, that we listen to the worship service, Bible study of other defenders that decided to stick with the teachings of Brother Irano Gimanalo? And Brother Felix Paimonal, will, will that confuse the brethren? For example, Pope uh, KEGM mentioned, uh, kindly correct me if I'm wrong, that some scriptures are not yet revealed because it is not the right time to unveil it. That's true. I mean, Brother Felix Paimonal, for example, did not know 
that the church was going to reach the far west. In his thinking, in his vision, the church was only going to remain in the Philippine archipelago. That was beyond uh, his vision. And so there are things in the scriptures that are not revealed, not known by brother, to brother Iranjo Manala, brother Felix Y. Manala. Remember, the ultimate authority are not us human beings, but the holy scriptures. Also, there are some verses that has different meanings when we start reading the whole passage. And that's important because we need to understand context. Context, context is so absolutely crucial, especially right now that we are having BHP. I am not implying that what they are teaching is wrong, but how will that affect the faith service of a true servant of Yahuwah Paul? Thank you, and may Yahuwah bless us all. So the question is, is it right? Is it appropriate for us to listen to other preachers who don't belong to the assembly of Yahusha? Would that cause confusion on our part? Well, I don't believe it should because it's an opportunity for us to exercise our ability to test those who are preaching to us, right? The truth of the matter is, the more we listen to different preachers, the more we can see how certain scriptures are misinterpreted, misapplied, misunderstood, and it's good practice for us. That way, we are able to divide the words of God appropriately. And this, in fact, is the instruction of the Apostle John to each one of us. It's an appropriate question because there's so many uh, different teachers in the world today, right? Um, not only from the different defenders group, defender groups, but throughout um, the internet, you will find so many, so many different preachers, some people preaching, for example, that uh, the COVID vaccine is the mark of the beast, right? And so there are a lot of things going on and people use the scripture, but most of it's taken out of context. And so we need to learn how to use context to determine what is good to accept and believe and what is really taken out of the, the context to the point that the scripture was twisted just to make your point. And so according to the Apostle John, what is our responsibility when there are people from different faiths, different uh, uh, organizations who preach holding a Bible in their hands? Let's read the book of 1 John 4 verse 1. Dearly loved friends, don't always believe everything you hear. I want to pause there for a while. Brethren, let's put this into practice because sometimes people can be gullible, right? There's a survey that was taken by social scientists and they figured out that people believe 80% they hear without even bothering to check the source, without thinking on their own, just because somebody else said it, automatically they believe it. There are people who are very gullible on the gullible scale. Apostle John says, don't be gullible. What is our responsibility? Bible says, dearly loved friends, don't, don't always believe everything you hear. And I include myself. When you're listening to BHP, BQA, our worship services, brethren, you have the responsibility to do your own research, to do your own work. Don't always believe everything you hear just because someone says it is a message from God. Test it first to see if it really is, for there are many false teachers around. If this was true during the days of the Apostle John, how much more, right, is this true during our 
time. So we need to be very careful, especially during the internet age, when anyone can inject easily any idea into your mind because of the availability of YouTube and Facebook and other social media outlets. So we need to be careful and defend our faith. We need to test it, test it at all times. But wait a minute, what does that mean that we must test it? What should we test for and how can we do the testing, right? Well, Apostle John uh, mentions in verse two, this is how you will be able to know whether it is God's spirit. Anyone who acknowledges that Yahusha Christ came as a human being has the spirit who comes from God, okay? So what must we do to test those who preach and they hold the Bible in their hands? How can we carry out this command from the apostle John? What must we test for? We test for God's spirit. Because if the one preaching has the spirit of God, then we should receive what they are preaching. But what does that mean to test for God's spirit? Because everyone will claim, well, we have the spirit of God, right? How can we know if someone has the spirit of God? Oh, brother, I was crying. I was weeping. It was very spiritual. Growing up in the INC, our uh, standard for a person who received the spirit is what? When they cry, right? But that's not what Apostle John is saying here. You see, crying and emotions are very deceptive. The Bible says the heart is very deceptive. A person can cry, and the reason why they're crying is not because of the spirit moving them. It could be for a lot of different reasons, right? And so that's not the standard. That is deceiving. When you say because he, everyone was crying, that's the proof of the spirit, they're deceiving themselves. When John, the apostle, says, test for the spirit, test to see if it's God's spirit, what must we do? There are certain things that we need to, to do to test if it's God's spirit. Number one, first of all, we need to understand the one who's preaching, what is his message? Is he teaching that Yahushua Christ came as a human being? In other words, are they teaching that Yahushua is a man in his state of being because there are many teachers today who teach well Yahusha is a man but he's also what God he's a man God a God man right John says he they must believe they must teach that Yahusha is a human being because when the prophecy was fulfilled and Yahusha was manifested here on earth he is a man not another God not a man God not a God man but a man and so if there are preachers who Preach powerfully, right? And maybe you feel we like weeping, but then they're preaching that Yahusha is also God. Well, then that's not of God's spirit. That's number one. What else? Uh, first John 4 verse 3. But every person who doesn't declare that Yahusha Christ has come as a human has a spirit that isn't from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist that you have heard is coming. That spirit is already in the world. What also must we test for while we listen to people preaching the word of God? We need to test for the spirit of the Antichrist. The spirit of the Antichrist was alive and well during the days of the Apostle John. Even today, and especially today, 
there will be the spirit of the Antichrist. So what does that mean? What is the meaning of Antichrist in the first place? Well, Antichrist is the English translation of the Koine Greek, Antichristos. It is made of two words, anti and Christos. Anti can mean, take note, not only against and opposite of, but also in place of. Did you get that? Because normally when people read antichrist, they mean someone who directly and obviously blatantly uh, opposes Christ, right? But in actuality, the word antichrist also, and perhaps this is an even more relevant term because no, I mean, no one really are looking for and listening to people who are outwardly, explicitly uh, blaspheming the Christ, right? They're always proclaiming the Christ. And so what we have to be careful about is the Antichrist spirit. And what does Antichrist mean? In place of Yahusha, like Vicarius, Billy, the Vicar of the Son of God. Someone who will replace Yahusha, someone who will take the authority, the position, the power that only is appropriate for Yahusha, like, for example, control of the book of life, right? And they will take it upon themselves. That's the spirit of what? The Antichrist. And so when we test for the spirits, when we test someone preaching the word of God, we need to ask ourselves, wait a minute, are they making any claims that their spiritual leaders are exercising authorities and powers that belong only to Yahusha. If so, if they do that, then you better not listen to them. What else? First John chapter four, four down to six. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. They are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world and the world listens to them. We are from God, and who, whoever knows God listens to us. But whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. How else can we test for the spirit of God? We need to test for the spirit of truth, because we can discern the spirit of truth from the spirit of falsehood. How can we do that? What is the standard for the spirit of truth? John says, we are from God, and whoever knows God listens to us, the pronoun us. What does that refer to? The apostleship, the apostles' authority. This is why the teachings that come from the authority of the apostles is the standard by which we are to see if it's the spirit of truth, or the spirit of falsehood. Now, brethren, beware of people who use passages like this and take the pronoun us and say that applies to us. <laughs> because there are people who are like that. They will say things like, they read verse 6, we are from God. Whoever knows, knows God listens to us. And then they will say that applies to us. If that's the case, they're taking the authority that belongs to the apostles and taking it for themselves. That's the spirit of falsehood, not the spirit of Truth. What does that mean? That we are to listen to, quote unquote, us, the apostleship authority. Where can we find that? 
2 Timothy 3, 14 and 17. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have been convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Yahushua. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Where can we find this source of apostolic teachings, teachings from the apostles that we use as a standard for truth in the Holy Scriptures? When the Apostle Paul was writing to Timothy, he said, you were taught the Scriptures. He knew that to be what? The Old Testament, right? The law, the prophets, poetry, and all that. And now Apostle Paul is saying and applying the scriptures also include the teachings of the apostles, including the epistles of Peter and John and his epistles to the assembly. So all of that can be found and categorized called scripture. So the scripture must be the basis of faith. So one way by which we can determine whether or not the one speaking is are they speaking from the Bible. That is the standard, the basis for our faith. How else must we test those who are preaching the word of God? Let's go back to 1 John 4, 17 to 21. Love is made perfect in us in order that we may have courage on the judgment day. And we will have it because our life in this world is the same as Christ's. There is no fear in love. Perfect love drives out all fear. So then, Love has not been made perfect in anyone who is afraid because fear has to do with punishment. We love God because God love, uh, first loved us. If we say we love God but hate others, we are liars. For we cannot love God whom we have not seen if we do not love others whom we have seen. The command that Christ also gives given us is this. Whoever loves God must love others also. And so another way by which we test as a person preaching the word of God or an organization preaching the word of God. We have to test them for their love, right? Because if they will hate others and promote hatred in their preaching and in their praying, if in their public worship, for example, they will say things like destroy people, kill people, Brethren, we need to keep away from them. They don't have the spirit of God. Even if they weep tears, even if they cry in their assemblies, it does not mean they have the spirit of God. The Bible says they are liars when they hate others and proclaim this hatred in their and from their pulpits. That's another test. What else? How else can we identify a preacher, a worker of the word of God who preaches the truth? Let's read 2 Timothy. Work hard so you can present yourself to God and receive his approval. Be a good worker, one who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly explains the word of truth. And so a person who is preaching from the pulpit using the Bible, not only must he use the Bible, he must use it correctly, right? Because just because someone holds the Bible in their hands or someone quotes scripture, it doesn't mean automatically that what they're preaching is the word of God. Because the Bible says correctly explain the word of 
True. So how do you do that? How do we correctly explain the words that are found in the Holy Scriptures? How can we know? How can we tell if someone who is preaching the word of God using the Bible has the spirit of God? Corinthians 2 verse 13. These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. And this is so important. The question that was asked um, mentioned about using verses in its context. This is what it's talking about. Apostle Paul says for us to be able to correctly divide the words of God, to correctly explain the truth of Scripture, we need to compare spiritual things with spiritual. What does that mean? We check the verse that we are studying with the verses on top of it and also at the bottom, right? The verses before and the verses after. What are we doing? We want to get the context. The context of the passage according to uh, the passages that surround it. And we also need to compare spiritual things with spiritual things by checking the passage in question and comparing it to the rest of the Holy Bible. Why? Because if the Holy Spirit is teaching you, there must be no contradiction, right? One part of Scripture cannot contradict another part of Scripture. This is why context, context, context is so important. Because without context, you can make the Bible communicate whatever it is that you want. And so we need to always look at the context of Scripture. That's another test. What else um, must we make sure of so that we will be able to say that we are correctly explaining the Word of God? Revelation 22, 18 to 19. And I solemnly declare to everyone who hears the words of prophecy written in this book, if anyone adds anything to what is written here, God will add to that person the plagues described in this book. And if anyone removes any of the words from this book of prophecy, God will remove that person's share in the tree of life and in the holy city that are described in this book. What also is part of correctly explaining the teachings of God. We must make available everything that's written in the Holy Scriptures. Because if we are to add to or subtract from, then it's no longer correctly teaching the Holy Bible. This is why if there are Bible teachers who tell you you should not study certain parts of the Bible, keep away from teachers who are like that. Because they're purposely telling you to remove parts of the Holy the Bible and that's something that the Bible warns us very strictly about. And lastly, what must be the result of the preaching of the words of God? What must be the result of studying the words of God? John 6.29, Yahusha answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. It is written in the prophets, and they shall be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learn from the Father comes to me. Who is the one speaking here? Yahusha. How can we know if the one preaching to us, what is another way by which we can determine if he is preaching from the Spirit of God? The result, if we are led 
to place our complete trust and hope, not in any other messenger, but the messenger, Ang Sugo, Yahushua HaMashiach. If we are led to believe him as the Sugo, Yahushua HaMashiach, then that's from God. But if we are diverted to someone else, if we are dependent to someone else other than Yahushua HaMashiach, that's no longer the work of God. Did you notice what Yahushua said? What is the work of God? It's to bring all of us to believe in whom? Him who, whom he sent. Who is that him? That is Yahushua. That's why Yahushua said it is written. Yes, there are scriptures. And if you study the scriptures and you let Yahuwah God teach you, what will be the result? You will be led to Yahushua. Not to another messenger, but to the messenger, Yahushua HaMashiach. So to test for the spirit, number one, does it teach the truth about Yahushua? Does he teach that he's a human being? There's so many teachers today who teach the Trinity, right? Who teach that Yahushua is also God. That's not true. Uh, does it seek to replace Yahushua? There are those who believe that their spiritual leaders are, not, are able to exercise some of the powers and responsibilities and authorities of Yahushua. That's not true. What else? Is it based on the holy the scriptures? Because there are some religions who add to the Holy Bible and some who take away from the Bible. What else? Does it promote hatred? Because if it promotes hatred, then that's not from the Spirit. Is it correctly explained? Which includes not adding or subtracting, which includes checking the context of Scripture, right? Does it bring you to Yahusha? Does it lead you to place your complete hope and trust in Yahusha instead of anyone else? And so this is how we test for the spirit, okay? All right, let's go to the next question. Uh, dear Brother John, good day. My question is regarding purgatory. Wow, it's been a while since we studied about purgatory. Some religious group uses uh, this verse as their basis or proof that there is a purgatory, Luke 16, 19 and 31. I know our stand regarding purgatory, but I just want to learn and be enlightened. Thank you so much, Yahuwah, God bless. So what is purgatory? What is the Catholic belief, for example, of purgatory? Simply purgatory, according to Catholicism, refers to an intermediate state after death, right? So you have person's alive, person dies. They go to an intermediate state after physical death for expiatory purification. What does that mean? Expiatory purification refers to being purged. That's what's called purgatory. Being purged from what? Sin. Because during their lifetime, they did not live a good enough life to be worthy to go to heaven. And so they still have to additionally pay for their sins in purgatory until they are fully purged. Then they can go to heaven. So there's a middle state in which further purification can take place. So that a person who is not yet ready to enter heaven can at last go to the kingdom of heaven. Okay, that's a place called purgatory. The only problem is... The Bible does not mention purgatory. Yahushua, he spoke a lot about heaven. He spoke even more about hell. But Yahushua never spoke about purgatory. Purgatory was invented. And there are people who take advantage of this invention. Because if you were a priest, for example, during the Middle Ages, and you have a loved one die, and 
the love the priest will say, well, if you will pay a certain amount, you can expedite the process of purification, right? So if you give enough uh, money, if you give enough offering, then they will tell you, okay, your loved one is now in heaven, right? And so this was happening during that time, which caused, um, what's his name? Martin Luther to question this whole idea of purgatory. So purgatory is never mentioned in the Bible. The Bible mentions heaven, hell, but nothing in between or an intermediary state. However, the question is, according to Luke 16, 19 to 31, there is a purgatory. So the question is, is Luke 16, 19 to 31 proof that there is purgatory? No. In fact, Luke 16, 19 to 31 actually shows us that purgatory does not exist. It is against the idea of purgatory. Luke 16, 19 to 31 goes against the teaching, contradicts the idea of purgatory. Well, let's go ahead and read that. Luke 16, 19 to 21, what this is about. Yahushua said there was a certain rich man who was splendidly clothed in purple and fine linen and who lived each day in luxury. At his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus who was covered with sores. As Lazarus lay there longing for scraps from the rich man's table, the dogs would come and lick his open sores. So Yahushua um, mentions, teaches his parable. Some say it's an actual event, but I think it's a parable, right, of Yahushua. There was a certain rich man. And there's another man. His name is Lazarus. The rich man was very rich and lived each day in luxury. Lazarus was a poor man. And because he was poor, he had no money to attend to his medical needs. So he has sores all over his body. It's a pretty grisly sight in this teaching of Yahusha, right? And so what happened after a while? Well, eventually... 22 to 24, the time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. And so what happens after a while is they both die, right? And in some future event, Yahusha is telling them about the realities of heaven and hell because there are some people who don't believe in an actual place called heaven and an actual place called hell. This is why Yahushua taught this parable to teach him about the two different realities. And so after death, what happens to the beggar? What happens to the poor man? He's taken to heaven. And so Abraham would eventually go to heaven. And so you, uh, the beggar gets to heaven. How about, Laz how about the, the rich man? Where does he go? Bible says in hell, the rich man uh, was stuck in. And what was his condition like? He was in agony in this fire. And so that would describe hell. So there's a place of agony and the place of comfort. Where's the place of comfort? In heaven. Where's the place of agony? 
in hell. Does it mention like a middle place? It does not mention a middle place, does it? It mentions the hell part. It mentions also heaven. And so what does he request? Uh, this rich man who is in hell. He's so much in agony that even if Lazarus were to just dip the tip of his finger in water and cool his tongue, that would be so much better. Can you imagine the kind of torment he's enduring? And so he makes a request for Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool his tongue. But what was, what did Abraham say to him? Uh, 25 to 26. But Abraham replied, son, remember that in your lifetime, you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he's comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed. Sort of those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross from here there to us. And so when Abraham receives this request from the rich man for Lazarus to go there and kind of help him out with his agony, what does Abraham say? He said it's impossible. Why? Because there's a great chasm that has been fixed. What does that mean? It eternally cannot be jumped over. So when a person dies, there's no longer the possibility of going from one place to the next, right? Furthermore, this chasm is a place where there's no human being. There is no purgatory. Instead, there's a chasm. Either you go to hell or you go to heaven. When you go to hell, you can no longer go to heaven. When you go to heaven, you cannot help those who are in hell, right? And so what does that tell you about this parable? Does it teach purgatory? No, it teaches that there is no purgatory. And so once this rich man realizes that, what does he request uh, for Abraham to do at, at the very least? Because he knows it's impossible for Lazarus to go to visit him in hell. Uh, well, let's read what it says in 25 to 26. 27, 20. He answered then, I beg you, I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. And so at least he was requesting Lazarus to go to earth. If he can't go to, to uh, hell, at least go to earth and tell them about this place of uh, torment. And what does Abraham say? Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. And so what was the reply of Abraham? He basically said, Lazarus will be of no use to your relatives. Because if they don't believe in the prophets, if they don't believe in scriptures, that's what he's basically telling them. If they don't believe in scriptures, even if Lazarus were to come down, even if there was a great miracle, someone rising from the dead, you will not believe anyways. And unfortunately, that's also the case with many people today. Right? There are people today who don't believe in judgment. There are people today who don't believe in heaven and hell. Right? They believe that if you die, that's it. You no longer exist. You cease to exist. And so the point of this parable is to show the people that there is an afterlife. There is more, more life or lack of it 
that will take place after one breathes his last. That's the point of the parable of Yahusha. Not to teach purgatory, but to teach that there is no purgatory. This is the only chance we have. The only opportunity we have is the life we live. If we, because of our, the way we live our life, we end up going to hell, then we can no longer go to heaven. Okay, so now that we still have our life, we still have the opportunity. And so what must we do? We need to turn the scriptures and live according to Yahuwah's commandments. Okay. All right, let's go to uh, our last question, zombie. All right. Good morning, Kajan. I hope all is well with you and your family. Glory be to our God, Yahuwah, for we do see the light and some people don't see it, which makes my mind wonder about it. Please hide Pomuna, my name, for there's a conflict. Papo. God be willing, I will be part of the assembly in the near future. I have a question, Paul. If you may please answer in the next BQ&A. I know that there was news circulating around the internet about the so-called zombie apocalypse, which is to happen this year, 2021. It was predicted by Nostradamus, I believe. My question is, does it say in the Bible that there's such a thing as zombie apocalypse that is to happen? really boggles my mind. Uh, truth be told, I've never heard of this before until this question was asked. I never heard of a zombie apocalypse. But technically, is that something biblical? We'll find out, okay? Let's go first to what Nostradamus predicts in 2021, the so-called zombie apocalypse. Well, who was Nostradamus? He was an astrologer. He also wrote a book which made him famous because he also um, uh, practiced fortune telling. No, not really fortune telling, but prophesying, right? He predicted events that will take place in the future. He wrote a famous book which made him famous. And even to this very day, I think it's a multi-million dollar industry and sort of capitalizing on the name of Nostradamus and he was made famous because of his book, which is called Prophecies, or Prediction of Future Events. An example of Nostradamus, or at least something attributed to him, you've probably heard about this, because I saw it once on Facebook and kind of brushed it off. But here it comes again, right? There will be a twin year, 2020, from which will arise a queen, Corona, <laughs> who will come from the East, China, and who will spread a plague virus in the darkness of night on a country with seven hills, Italy, and will transform twilight of men into dust, death, to destroy and ruin the world. It will end, it will be the end of the world economy as you know it. How many here remember this, this uh, excerpt, like back in 2020, right? And they said, this is proof that Nostradamus and his book is authentic and legitimate because he was able to put some details, right? Look at the details, twin year, 2020. Queen, Corona, East, China, plague, virus, seven hills, Italy, dust, death. You see the details, right? And so when you look at this and you believe that Nostradamus predicted Corona, then you probably will believe that 2021 will be when the zombies 
are going to attack humanity and bring about the apocalypse, right? But the question is this, is this authentic? It turns out that this was a fake. Yeah, it was never in any of Nostradamus's works. And we should not be surprised because when we look at the work of Nostradamus, if you actually read the book, um, it's very vague. It doesn't have details. As a matter of fact, I'm gonna give you a test, okay? These are some of the hits, the successful predictions. These are some of the successful predictions of Nostradamus, okay? I'm gonna show you an excerpt. From on high, evil will fall on the great man. That was a prediction. Isn't it obvious? Who's that man right there? Could be anyone, right? They said this was a successful prediction of the assassination of John F. Kennedy. <laughs> Why? Because the shooter was from on high, <laughs> right? So oh, that's the John F. Kennedy assassination, right? Here's another one. From the depths of the West of Europe, a young child will be born of people by his tongue, seduce a great troop. You know who that was? Oh, that is Adolf Hitler. <laughs> That's Adolf Hitler, he said. Here's another one. Within two cities, there will be scourges, the like of which was never seen. What is that? What could that be? You know what they said? They said that was Hiroshima and Nagasaki. <laughs> so what do you notice about the predictions of Nostradamus? Extremely vague, practically non-existent in meaning. It's like an ink blot. Have you seen an ink blot before? When psychologists present it to you, what does this look like to you, right? That's what it is. You put your own meaning into it, and that's what they've done. And people get on board the Nostradamus train and make him popular, even though what he has to say is not specific enough. In fact, it's extremely vague. And when you look at it, it doesn't make any sense, right? And so that's Nostradamus. His predictions really do not make any sense, but you can make sense out of it because when you use your imagination, you can make sense out of anything, right? But when it comes to predicting the future, who alone can do it? Isaiah 46.10. Only I can tell you the future before it even happens. Everything I plan will come to pass or I do whatever I wish. Who is the only one who can correctly tell us the future before it even happens at the 100% success rate. <laughs> Who's that? Yahuwah. person can get lucky. For example, a person will say, okay, the Lakers are going to win the championship in 2021, game six against the Brooklyn Nets. Right? He could get lucky, and that prediction comes true. But when it comes to telling the future with a 100% success rate, it's only Yahuwah God who can do that. What's the proof that Jehovah God can do that? It's called the Bible. Because when we read the Bible, you'll find many prophecies. And when we study just the messianic prophecies alone, the prophecies about the Messiah, there are so many detailed prophecies about the Messiah, like his birth, where he, were, where he will come from, the conditions of his birth, like the days of Herod, uh, the, the mother, the father, the birth, I mean, the, 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 the number of prophecies just about his birth is so numerous, about his early life, about his ministry, inclu including riding on a donkey, right? 
his betrayal, his death and resurrection. When we look at the Old Testament and look at the prophecies concerning the Messiah, there are over 300 Old Testament messianic prophecies. Did you know that? And these prophecies are not like what you read from Nostradamus's book. These are detailed from the Old Testament. And someone who studied all these prophecies, they, they did some mathematical calculations. And the estimated odds, the odds of just 48. Again, how many prophecies were there? 300. If, what are the odds if just 48 prophecies were fulfilled in the life of one man? If you calculate the odds, it's 1 in 10 over 157. <laughs> that is practically impossible, right? You know how big a number 10 to the 157 power is? You know how big a number that is? To give you an idea, to give you some context, how many atoms in the universe? You know how many atoms approximately in the universe? About 10 to the 78th power. Atoms, right? Atoms, 10 to the 78th power. And when we look at the, uh, the odds of having 48, just 48 prophecies being fulfilled in the life of just one man, right? It's one in 10 over 157. The odds of that is like the equivalent of winning 22 lotteries in a row, according to DC Collier. That's just for 48 prophecies. This is why when we want to look at prophecies, don't turn to the book of Nostradamus. Go to the book of the Bible. Because only Yahuwah can predict the future with 100% accuracy. And this has been demonstrated with the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Yahusha HaMashiach. Okay. Now, let's go ahead and take a look at what Nostradamus actually said, which made people believe that 2021 is the zombie apocalypse. Where did that come from? Well, this is what it says. And I want you to judge for yourself. Few young people, half dead to give a start, dead through spite, it will cause the others to shine, and in an exalted place, some great evils to occur. Sad concepts will come to harm each one. Temporal dignified, the masses succeed. Fathers and mothers dead of infinite sorrows. Women in mourning. The pestilent she-monster. The great one to be no more. All the world to end. Okay. Does that say anything about zombies? Half dead. Okay. Yeah. Half dead to give a start. What, what could that possibly mean? When you, say, when you say half dead, it means you're not interested. Right? Person who's half dead is not interested to start something. That's what I'm reading. First of all, it does not mention 2021. Someone just out of, no, out of nowhere just mentions 2021. This is going to happen. There's no mentioning of 2021. It does, not, this, it does not describe what a zombie will do, right? I mean, look at this, dead through spite. What does that mean? He will cause others to shine? I mean, zombies don't do that, do they? Do zombies cause others to shine? And in an exalted place, some great evils to occur? It just seems kind of... You can make any sense out of it. You can use your imagination and you can cause this to describe the World Series that happened last this year, right? You can fit that in this, in this scheme. And so you can make it sound anything because it's so vague. This is why people like Gene Dixon and other so-called prophets, 
This is why they can make it appear that they can predict things. They just put a couple of vague stuff and let your cognitive bias put things together so that it produces a seemingly coherent picture of a prediction coming true. That's what they're doing. But when you really look at it with a non-biased mind and approach, there's nothing, right? There's nothing there that says about zombies, that there's nothing there that speaks about an apocalypse in 2021. I mean, anyone can say the world's gonna come to an end, right? Anyone can say that, the Mayans have been saying that, ancient civilization, us works have been saying that, the Bible's been saying that. So there's nothing here that's specific enough that means a zombie apocalypse in 2021. Nevertheless, there are people who say that there are zombies in the Bible. Zechariah 14.12 and Matthew 27.50-53. Let's go ahead and take a look at that. Is that okay? Zechariah 14.12. Let's look at Zechariah 14.12. And Yahuwah will send a plague on all the nations that fought against Jerusalem. Their people will become like walking corpses. Their flesh rotting away. Their eyes will rot in their sockets and their tongues will rot in their mouths. Now, when you look at that, the way it's described in the NLT, walking corpses. Where are they? Walking dead. And there you have it, brother. The Bible's talking about zombies in that passage. But wait a minute. These walking corpses, are they walking corpses? No, it says like walking corpses. Why are they like walking corpses? Because the plague is so destructive, it, the rotting of their flesh happens while they're standing. That's how quickly their flesh begins to rot. This is why in the next, in the other translation, the, the New King James, and this shall be the plague with which Yahuwah will strike all the people who fought against Jerusalem. Their flesh shall dissolve while they stand on their feet. Their eyes shall dissolve in their sockets, and their tongue shall dissolve in their mouths. And so the disease, the plague, is going to be so swift, it doesn't give them a chance to run to the nearest hospital. You get it? It's not saying they're going to remain walking corpses and be zombies attacking the dead, I mean the living. No, that's not what it says. And this event is going to take place when the tribulation is about to end to usher the millennial kingdom. This is what Zechariah chapter 14 is all about. Now, there's another passage in Matthew 27, 50 to 53. Then Yahushua shouted again, and he released his spirit. In other words, he died, right? So he was on the cross. He died, released his spirit. At that moment, the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook. Rocks split apart and tombs open. The bodies of many godly men and women who had died were raised from the dead. They left the cemetery after Yahushua's resurrection, went into the holy city of Jerusalem and appeared to many people. Here's an incident in the Holy Bible. And people use this sometimes to describe zombies. Why? Because the tombs were open. Who are inside the tombs? Dead people. What happened to them? They were risen. And then they went to Jerusalem and appeared to many people. Is that a zombie? Is it a zombie attack on Jerusalem? No. It's what? A resurrection. 
What kind of resurrection? It's a good resurrection, right? Why? Because these are godly men and women. And what caused this resurrection? The death of Yahusha. And so this was a foretaste of what is to come. It does not mention that these people who came from the tombs or from the grave are without a mind, without speech, right? That's not what it says. It's saying they appeared to many people. And so this is a foretaste of the resurrection. Yahusha's death was powerful. It brought redemption because of that redemption. It affected even some of those who have already died who were godly, right? It's like Yahuwah God is giving the sign that the one you killed is really the Messiah. Okay, so it's, it's not about zombies. Nevertheless, is it, when we talk about zombie apocalypse, is that biblical? What do you think? Well, it depends on how you define zombie, <laughs> right? What do you define? I mean, when we think of zombies, we think of what? Like this, right? That's how we think of zombies. Well, let's go ahead and uh, consult with Merriam-Webster and the dictionary. What is a zombie? Well, this is what it says. Definition of a zombie, or two definitions. Number one, a will-less, without a will, <laughs> right? Speechless human, they don't speak, they don't speak up for what is right, <laughs> held to have died and been supernaturally reanimated, okay? The supernatural power that according to voodoo belief may enter into and reanimate that body. Number two definition, look, a person held to resemble the so-called walking dead, especially, what is it? I love that word, automaton. <laughs> Have, do you know what an automaton is? An automaton is like a robot. <laughs> they obey and never complain. Automaton. That's what they are. Right? A zombie is an automaton. They don't think for themselves. That is the equivalent of a zombie. And when we look at that, walking dead. When we look at the Bible, does the Bible talk about a walking dead? Yeah. Look at this. Timothy 5.6. But she who lives in pleasure is dead while she lives. So what is she? A walking dead. Isn't that a zombie? <laughs> so there's so many people today who are alive, but in the eyes of God, they're what? Dead. Are there a lot of people today? Yeah. A lot of people today who ignore Yahuwah's commands who ignore the warning of Yahuwah. Yahuwah wants people to repent so that when judgment day comes, the apocalypse comes, they will be saved, but people keep ignoring, right? And so in the eyes of God, they're walking dead. They're alive, but spiritually they are dead. So they will perish in the apocalypse. Can we kind of say that's a zombie apocalypse? <laughs> Technically, I don't know, right? But when you look at the other definition of zombies, really interesting, automaton. Right? Automaton. One who is without a will, without speech. Right? And so when you look at the history of the people of Israel, it kind of happened. Look at this. Jeremiah 5, 30, 31. A terrible and shocking thing has happened in the land. I mean, this is really shocking. Prophets speak nothing but lies. Priests rule as the prophets command. And my people offer no 
objections. But what will they do when it all comes to an end? What is that? An apocalypse. An end. Why? Why is it so shocking? What is so shocking about this scenario? Because when you see a walking dead person who is in the corpse, he's like dead, right? But he's still walking and conversing with you, or you see them moving. It's shocking and terrifying, right? This is why the, the, the series Walking Dead is so popular because it's not something you see. It has that shock factor. This is also shocking. What's the shock factor? The people of God. The prophets speak nothing but lies. The, the priest believe, uh, pro promotes those lies, but the people offer no objections. Why? Automatons. Whatever they get from their leaders, they accept without judgment. Yes, men. Obey and never complain. Automatons. What will, come, what will be their end? They will come to an end. Apocalypse. Is that like a zombie apocalypse too? Kind of, right? But when is the real, real apocalypse that will bring the dead to death, to, to the lake of fire? Let's read. Revelation 20, 5, 7 to 8. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the, the thousand years were finished. This is after the uh, millennium kingdom, millennial kingdom. Now, when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. And so here we have, after the millennium kingdom, the thousand years are over, the rest of the dead, what happens to them? They're resurrected. And this is shocking. After they're resurrected, who is set free to deceive? Satan. How many uh, was Satan able to deceive? The number is as the sand of the sea. See how gullible people are? There are people who are yes men, even if they're saying yes to Satan himself. You see that? That's what technically for me, that's a zombie. When you accept without question, when you can be easily deceived because you just want to obey and never complain. You don't use your mind. You don't use your ears. You don't use your eyes. You don't use your mouth. What is that called? A zombie. Right? Accept everything. And so they're deceived. How many? As many as the sand the sea. Can you imagine that many people walking around on earth all deceived by Satan? That looks like a zombie apocalypse, doesn't it? And what will they do? Revelation 20, 9, 14. They spread out over the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people and the city that he loves. But fire came down from heaven and destroyed them. The death and the world of the dead were thrown into the lake of fire. This lake of fire is the second death. Doesn't that, doesn't that sound like a, one of the episodes from Walking Dead? Where you have a city and you have people inside and it's surrounded by so many zombies attacking the city. Listen, <laughs> and then fire comes down from heaven. And what happens to the world of the dead? They're thrown or cast into the lake of fire. And so this is a warning of Yahuwah God for people who are easily deceived. You see, when we don't use our mind, when we don't speak up and object to what is wrong, then we are like zombies in a sense. 
because we're not using our mind and our speech so that we can promote the word of God so that people will know the difference between the truth and what is false. If we don't do that, if we don't exercise our right to speak up, what makes us different from a zombie who just ignores everything and just plays along, right? This is why the person who asks this question gives some insight in his own words or in her own words. He, I'm not sure who wrote this, but look, he says, glory be to our God, Yahuwah, for we do see the light and some people don't see it, which makes my mind wander, wonder about it. And so he's wondering why he sees the light, but there are people who don't see the light. When people don't, uh, do not see the light, what does that mean when they don't see the light? This is what Apostle Paul said, Ephesians 5, 8 to 14. For once you were full of darkness, but now you have light from the Lord. So live as people of light. For this light within you produces only what is good and right and true. Carefully determine what pleases the Lord. Take no part in the worthless deeds of evil and darkness. Instead, expose them. It is shameful even to talk about the things that ungodly people do in secret. But their evil intentions will be exposed when the light shines on them. For the light makes everything visible. So why do people not see the light? Bible says when we used to be in darkness and now have been translated to the kingdom of light, we should live as people of light. But if we don't live as people of light, then the light is not doing us and others any good. Why do people not live in the light? Because it takes effort to do that. Do you see the responsibilities of people who, in the, who are in the light? Because when you are in the light, you have a responsibility to make sure you use the light. But there are people who are in the light, but they don't use the light. What is the responsibility of people who are in the light? The Bible says, carefully determine what pleases the Lord. What does that mean? We got to use our mind, right? What else? The Bible says, do not uh, take part in the worthless deeds of evil and darkness. Instead, expose them. What is that? Using our eyes, our ears, and moving our mouths, right? We take a stand on what is good, what is right, what is true, so that what is in the darkness will be exposed by our light. But there are people who choose not to do that. And I want you to think about this. When people close their eyes, pretend nothing wrong, there's nothing wrong, and shut their ears, close their minds, and shut their mouths, what is that? What is that? When you're a person with a mind, with ears, with mouths, with eyes, but you don't use it, what is that? By definition, what is that? Isn't that self-inflicted zombieism? Right? That's what I see. And so what does Apostle Paul say so that we can make use of the light that has been given us? The Bible says, for the light makes everything 
visible. Use the light. How so? Here's what he said in verse 15. This is why it is said, awake, O sleeper, rise up from the dead, and Christ will give you light. That's interesting. That phrase, awake, O sleeper, rise from the dead. Because this person is still alive. But he's like he's but it's like he's dead, right? Why? Because he's not using the light. And so, what does Apostle Paul instruct him to do? He quotes the scripture and says, Awake, oh sleeper. So for those who belong to the light and they don't use their minds, their ears, their eyes, and their mouths, if they don't do that, they're sleeping. They're sleeping. And what's the equivalent of that? They're dead. In the eyes of Yahuwah, they're dead. And so what must we do? We need to awake. We need to do something about what has been given to us. We can't just sleep all day. Because when we awake, when we come out from the dead, and we, need, we begin to proclaim what is right, Christ will give you light. And brethren, this, I believe, is what all of us need to do. Because the apocalypse is true. There's going to be an end. An end of all things, whether we like it or not. It's going to be an end. There's going to be a day of judgment. Question is, what are we doing to prepare for that judgment? Either we can act like zombies. Or we can take the light. Use our mind, our eyes, our ears, and our mouth. And proclaim that light. So that more people can receive the promised salvation. Okay? All right. That's our lesson for tonight. Uh, let us stand for our prayer. Everlasting Father. Yes. Yahuwah God Almighty. Yes. Thank you so much for continuing to guide our studies of your holy words. Amen. Father, we believe you have a purpose for everything. Yes. Amen. We believe that you were guiding each one of us. Yes. Amen. And so we want to follow you. Yes. Only give us enough courage. Yes. Because it does take courage to speak up. Yes. It takes courage to stand out. Yes. It takes courage to proclaim your name yes. and your holy words. Amen. Father, we know by standing up to what is right, we yes. will be opposed and persecuted. But Father, we would rather be on the side of light yes. rather than to ignore the evils of the world. Amen. Father, help us to exercise our responsibilities. Yes, Bless us with wisdom and power. Yes, because only by your power can we accomplish your holy will. Amen. Yahushua, our king, yes, may you please Lord. continue to prepare us for your appearing. We long yes, for that day to be with you at last yes, and Lord. to be with you forevermore. Amen. As we wait for your glorious appearing. We ask that you please continue to instruct us yes. by means of the Ruach that yes. we will know your will and carry it out to its fulfillment. Amen. Help us to spread the message of light yes. to our friends and loved ones. Yes. Open their eyes that they will have the opportunity to see your truth that will lead to salvation. Amen. Father, teach us to test all spirits, yes, to so test all those who preach the good book. Yes. Help us to be guided by your wisdom yes. that yes. we will always make the right decisions 
in our life. Amen. Remember your people throughout the world. Yes, May you heal us of our sicknesses. Yes, May you bless our families. Yes, May you bless our livelihoods as well. Yes. And help us to be able to peacefully worship you in spirit and in truth. Amen. We ask and beg everything loving Abba. In the name of our Lord and Savior. Yahusha HaMashiach. Amen. Amen.